All right, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and open our prayers. We open the word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that you've given us so we can learn how to worship you and how to follow you. We ask that you bless this time as we look at you, this word and guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we're going to be going through lots of different verses. So if you have paper, you might just want to write them down because I'm going to go to them very quickly. I've marked them already in my Bible so I can get there very quick. So uh, we're not going to wait for everybody to get there to each of these verses. So just write them down as we go along. But we're going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. We finally finished uh, Paul's nice short sentence that we spent so, the four weeks on. And so here we go, verse 18. And he that is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be of things in earth or things in heaven. So we're going to look at this whole idea that the exaltation of Christ. And this is something as you look at, the cults out there will always get who Jesus is wrong. All right? It's very simple. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. And he is preeminent over all things. And the cults will tell you everything but that he's God. Uh, many of them will tell you, no, he's not God. He was a good prophet. Uh, some, you know, very large group in this area like to tell us that he's the, the son of God and so is Lucifer the son of God and that they were brothers. Okay, we have all kinds of different things that the other religions and cults will say about Jesus that is not true. And all of it is designed to try to make people think that Jesus is not God. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And here we see Paul telling the Colossians that Jesus has got a very high position. First off, he's the head of the church. Okay, The church is a creation that came about on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down in the upper room and baptized the, the, the disciples into the Holy Spirit and indwelled them and they went out and 5,000 people got saved on the first, first message. Now, I, I don't know if very many pastors have ever had 5,000 people come out on the first time they've ever spoken a, a message, but Peter's message was got 5,000 people to respond to the gospel. That's a pretty good church. Pretty good church to start out with. And Jesus is the head of the church. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. For some reason I'm having trouble getting to my marked page. Too many marks. 122. And hath put all things under his feet, and give him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body and the fullness of him that fills all in all. Jesus is the head. What does it mean to be the head? It means the one that's preeminent, the one that's in charge. And some people don't like the idea that some people are in charge of things, but God put people in charge of different things. Namely, Jesus is the primary in the church, then pastors. In our, in our governments, uh, he put the governments under him on, to rule the countries and protect the, you know, from evildoers. And we have the citizens in the family. It's Jesus, then the father and the mother and the kids. There's 
an order and a rank to everything that God does. He does everything in order. And so we're looking at these things of Jesus being the head, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So again, we see Jesus being the head. 523 of Ephesians. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to God, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. And then we go down to verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And notice who did the work in that verse. It was Jesus. Jesus washes the church pure. And this is something we've got to begin to fully understand. So many people will come, okay, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then they'll go, okay, God, you got me in the door. Now I've got to keep myself here. And this is a very big teaching in the cults. You know, maybe we'll say that Jesus might be a good starting point. He was a good teacher. But you've got to do everything you can to keep yourself holy. The sad thing is there's Christian churches that kind of teach you that. Start with Jesus and then do good works. And if you don't do enough good works, you might not stay in Jesus and you might, you might be dropped out when it comes to salvation. Not what the scriptures tell us. For by grace are we saved through faith, uh, by grace, for by grace are we saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, we, we keep this in mind. I can do nothing that pleases God enough to get me into heaven. Period. No matter how, many, how long I've been walking with God, no matter how good I might think I am, or you think you are, or you're not going to do enough that's God's going to say, boy, I'm just so lucky that you're in my family. I couldn't have done this without you. You're not going to hear those words from God. He's going to say, Isaiah 63, all your righteousness, all the best things you think you did are filthy rags. And, you know, the world, for the most part, is depending on that kind of mentality. I'm going to be good enough that when I stand before God, he's going to look down and say, oh, you're so good, I've just got to have you in heaven. And if you witness to people, you talk to people about how do you get to heaven and all the time. I say, I hope my good works outweigh my bad. What are they saying? I'm hoping that when I stand before God, he looks at me and says, oh, you're just so good, you've got to come into heaven. They're in for a big surprise when they go before God and he says, I have one standard. You have to be perfect. Yeah. Kind of lets out uh, just about everybody in the, in the population, doesn't it? Let's out everybody in this church even. And every other church out there. There's no individual who's ever lived outside of Jesus who is perfect. Everybody has done something wrong. So when you stand before God saying, God, I've got all my life, but I did this one sin. I told one little lie when I was a three years old, God, and everything else has been perfect. God's going to say guilty. And we go, well, that's not fair. Well, sorry, it's God's standard. His standard is perfection. And he is the master. He is the head. This verse goes on to tell us that he is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from all things, and in all things he might have preeminence. And again, remember we talked last week, firstborn does not mean the firstborn of God. He is the preeminent one, the chief. 
And he's going to have preeminence. God has allowed Jesus to be preeminent over all things. What does preeminence mean? Number one. <laughs> okay. If you're, the, if you're the one that's preeminent, you're, you're the one that's standing out. John chapter 3 verse 31 says, He that comes from above is above all. He that is on the earth is earthly and speaks of earthly things. That he that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. So he's basically saying Jesus came from heaven. If you're from heaven, you're going to think heavenly thoughts. And you know, as Christians, the more we get into God's word, the more we think like God does. The more we study his word, the more we read his word, the more we let it change who we are, the more we start thinking and acting like God. Because his word comes into us and changes who we are. And hopefully you've noticed that over your years of walking with God, how you used to be able to do some things and now you can't. And sometimes it's by conscious choice. I'm not I'm giving that up. But how many things have you looked at in your life and go, well, you know, I used to, when somebody would say something like this to me, I would get really upset and I'd be sarcastic and I'd say this back to them. And then you go, you know, I don't do that anymore. I don't do this activity anymore. I don't act this way. I'm more loving. I'm more forgiving. Will we ever be exactly like God? Probably not, but we should be getting closer and closer to him. He is preeminent. He gives us a new knowledge, a new way of thinking. In Romans 14, verse 9, it says, For this is the end. Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Lord over everything, dead and living. He rose, he came to this earth, lived a life, died, and rose again. Now, that part about rose again is so important for us as Christians. We do not have a dead founder. Every other religion out there has a dead founder. You know, don't believe me? Look at, look at the Buddhists, uh, the, the, the Muslims. They are supposed to make a trip in their lifetime to Mecca and also to the tomb of Muhammad, who he says he's only the prophet. You know, he's not God. He, God didn't die in their, in their thing, but he's still in his grave. The original Buddha is dead. They know where his grave is. You know, uh, now, we look at this and say, Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. And we look at this, and we've done many sermons over the years on this. The tomb is empty. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. His enemies admit that the tomb is empty. Now, they, all tell, they tried to tell people, well, the disciples stole the body, which made no sense, no sense at all, because that was a Roman guard that they would have had to overpower. Uh, so we have all these different things. Jesus rose from the dead and is number one over all things. And this is so important for us to really fully understand. Revelation. Know what I said? Revelation. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. Most people were not in the class when we did the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and to Pergamos, and into Tyathira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Jesus said, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You know, the, 
the A to Z, <laughs> which includes everything in between those two numbers. And he wasn't saying I'm just the first and the last. He's saying I'm the first and the last and everything that might possibly be in between those. In between those. His preeminence. Do we see God as being preeminent in our life? How many times do we do something thinking, well, I might just get away with this? Now, we may not consciously say those words, but aren't we, when we go into a sin, saying, God, you're, you're just not paying attention. I may get away with this. You know, we're not speaking those words. We might not even think them when we're doing it. But if we truly understood that God was there, he was preeminent, he is number one, would you do some of the things that you do? Would I do some of the things that I do? <laughs> you know, something to think about. How preeminent, how number one is he? On October 31st, it was the 500-year celebration of the beginning of the Reformation when Luther pin nailed up the theses on the church door. Do you know one of the things that drove Luther into this research in the Bible was because he was so burdened by his sins? He was so upset about sin and how he could live perfect enough to be accepted by God, which is what the Catholic Church taught him. You had to be more good than bad, and you had to go to the priest and be forgiven. And, and he's going, well, I do more wrong than I do good. How can I, how can I get to heaven? So he started reading the Bible. And that's when he came up with, you're saved by grace alone. And he really freed him to realize that God is number one. Nothing he was going to do was going to be good enough. And he says, this is freeing. Do you realize how free, freeing the grace of God is? Imagine if you had to make up for every bad thing that you've done in your life. For some people, that would be spending a whole long time making up. Then, of course, the question is, is it one-to-one? -one? For every bad thing I do, I have to do one good thing? Or do I have to do two or three good things for every bad thing? And this was a really bad thing, so do I have to do really good things? Or this wasn't really a really bad thing, so how many good things? What a miserable way to live. You know, trying to figure out what's going to please God. And you know, that's what most of the world is trying to do. Well, I, I did this wrong thing, so I've got to go out and do a bunch of good things, so maybe I can have more good on my, on my books. And then you have to weigh out what is good and what is bad. And we've shared with you, what does God say is bad? Lying lips, gossip. <laughs> you know, what, what do most of us put on that list? Murder, kidnap, <laughs> uh, you know, rape. You know, our list is way up here, and God's saying, you know, I really think that uh, your gossiping and lies are really high on my list. I hate those things. And we're going, God, those are, those are on the bottom of my list. They're not really that big a deal. You know, so how do, we measure our, how do we measure the bad in our life? Grace is such a wonderful way to live. God, you paid the price. All I got to do is believe in you and, you're, and, and have you forgive me. The power of grace. And, you know, there are, there are many pastors out there that don't want to teach grace. Why do they don't want to teach grace? Is they're afraid that people will use it as a license to sin. But, you know, if you really know God in your life, grace is not going to lead you to sin. You're not going to go, okay, God, you're in my life. I just want to sin as much as possible because you're in my life. That is not the way we react to God being in us. Because when we sin, we should be heartbroken that we have disobeyed God. 
it should affect us that it's a bad thing. We should go before God, confess our sins, get our relationship back in order, and start following him as much as he gives us the power to follow him. And it's him that pow- empowers us to live godly lives. No matter, we can discipline our flesh. And we've talked about this. We can, we can use the whip and chair and discipline our flesh, get it in a cage for a little while. But just like any wild animal, the minute you turn your back on the flesh, it is going to come back with a vengeance. You know, Siegfried and Freud, uh, you know, with their lion that attacked them, you know, they turned his back and forgot that he was in the cage with a wild beast. Took advantage of, okay, you forgot that I'm wild, here I am. Our flesh is that same way. We can beat it into submission. As long as we're watching it, we might keep it in there, but it's going to turn on us the moment it has an opportunity to stand up and turn. When we drop our guard down for just a moment, we'll find it going, wow. And that's those times when we go, wow, where did that sin come from? I never thought I'd be doing that. Or I thought I had that one all under control. And all of a sudden, the flesh comes out in in a very strong, victorious place. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Fullness. This is an interesting word in the, Hebrew, in the Greek. This word for fullness is pleroma, and it means to fill to the very top. And it actually implies filling to the top so that it actually, you know you're at the top because it's overflowing. You fill your cup, and if you're doing it pleroma, you're filling it up, and it just starts to overflow, and you go, okay, it is full. You're filling your silos, and you fill them up until they start to pour out the silo, and you go, it is full. It cannot contain anything else. Jesus cannot contain anything else. It says, it pleased the Father that in him should dwell the fullness. And the good news for us is that he wants to help us with that fullness. He wants to see us be full. John 1.16 and this is the full, and of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. As Christians, we receive the fullness of God. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in God and, and Jesus, and he dwells in us. Can you picture this? In us dwells God with all that fullness that he brings with him. And how many times do we try to put him off into some corner? God, you just go over there in the corner and I'm going to live my life. Number one, you can't put him in the corner because he's so full, he's filling all of you. And yet we treat him as if, God, you're just, stay over there, God. (laughs) Because he's indwelling us completely and he gives us grace. He gives us his grace to be dealing with and just the love of God and all that he does for us. We want to keep it in mind. What level of love does God give us? He died for us. Think about that. Jesus Christ died for us. And we bring this up several times, but you realize that what took him to the cross was his love for us. What kept him on his cross was his love for us. He told the disciples, he goes, you know, I'm going to do this for the Father. I, if I didn't, if it wasn't what, what, I, what I was called to do, I could call 12 legions of angels. Rome had 10 legions. They were considered the strongest nation. 
And Jesus is saying, I can call more angels than Rome has to, to deliver me. I'm not, worried about, I'm not worried about this. I have the power to be delivered. And yet he hung on the cross, crucified by man. At any point he could have said, Father, there, none of the, this isn't worth it. I don't want to go through this. I'm coming home. We'll just let all these people go to hell because they're just not worth it. And yet his love for us kept him on the cross. Why? So that we could go to heaven and spend eternity with him. Oh, the price that he paid. How many of us are willing to pay a price to see somebody get saved? You know, we're better off. What price would you be willing to pay to see somebody get saved? I've shared this many times. In the office, there's a paper up there that says, what is the value of one soul? What is the value of one soul? What would you be willing to do if, if you knew that by going through it, somebody would get saved? Would you die? Jesus died. Would you be willing to take pain? And I've said, you know, pain is a lot harder to deal with than dying because if you die, you go to heaven. Pain you have to suffer with. Paul went through severe pain so that he could reach people. He talked about being shipwrecked three times being stoned, and not by drugs, <laughs> being stoned with rocks and being left for dead, being without funds, being, being without food. Why did he go through all of this? Because he said, God, I'm looking to heaven and I'm looking to people getting, coming to you. And how many times have maybe you said, and I've said, or we've heard said, you know, well, God, this is just too hard. I don't, I don't want to go through all this trouble. And God's saying, well, there's souls at the end of it. There's souls at the end of it. And yet many times we'll say it's just not worth, it's not worth it. The struggle I'm going through, God, is just not worth lifting you up in. And so that others will see it. Very critical that we keep this in mind. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And has put all things under his foot to feet and give him to be head over all things with the church, which is the body and the fullness of him that fills all in all. Again, he fills everything. He fills everything. Verse 20 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross. You know, the blood is something that a lot of churches are dropping out of their doctrine. The blood of Christ. Why did he shed his blood? Because the Bible tells us without the remission of sin, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We'll leave our most important part of that verse. Jesus shed his blood so sins could be forgiven. Without the shedding of the blood, that would not have happened. Without him dying on the cross, there would be no forgiveness for us. And what have we defined forgiveness as? Giving up the right to demand judgment. Because of the blood, Jesus is allowed to say, Father, they belong to us. I paid their debt. They're, they've come into me. They're wearing my righteousness. They're, our, they're, they're part of us, and they deserve heaven. You know, think about this. Because of the blood of Christ, we enter heaven. What can wash you free from sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, I love these songs about the blood of Jesus. It washes us free of sin. 
The red blood makes us white as snow. It <laughs> doesn't make any sense in a, in, when you're thinking about it, but it is, in God's point of view, it's what makes us perfect. He covers sin. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And there is only one sin that is not forgiven, and that is to re reject Jesus Christ as your, as, as, and his sacrifice. When people stand at the white throne judgment, they're going to have one question be to put to them. What did you do with my son? Jesus said there's only one sin that's unforgivable. What did you do with Jesus? Did you accept him or did you reject him? The Holy Spirit's whole job, primary job, is to convict people of their sin and bring them to Jesus. Now, once you're saved, he's got all kinds of other good things for you. He's the one that empowers you, the one that gives you strength. But his primary job is to bring people to Jesus through the blood. Through the blood of Christ that he shed. And we can never forget the blood because it is so important. You know, we're, early days of Christianity, go, oh, you're that bloody religion that believes in the blood of this man that died for you. Yes, we are. You know, I've shared with you many times with other, other Bible studies. You know, when, when you get criticized by the world for something, sometimes you might as well just agree with them. Well, you believe in that blood and that you can't go to heaven without the blood. Oh, you're absolutely sure. You're absolutely correct. Well, you Christians are just so intolerant. You believe that there's only one way to heaven. Thank you. Yes, that is true. You know, when the world calls you intolerant, it's the worst insult they can think of giving us. And when you just say, yes, you're right. I'm going to be intolerant because it's only Jesus. You know, kind of takes the wind out of their sails. In Antioch, they first called the followers of, of the way Christians. It was an insult. They looked at it as an insult. Well, you guys are just Christ followers, little Christ. And the church said, you know, we like that title. Yes, we're going to just accept that title. Sometimes it's not worth arguing with the lost world over some of the things they want to argue over. You know, because when we argue with them, we're just being like they are. There are very few things, and I've shared with you, there are very few things that I'm even going to argue about on Bible. There's things I feel very strongly about and will teach, but you know, there's only a handful of things that are absolutely life or death issues, and I'm going to plant a flag off and say, this must be true or else. First one is, the Bible is the word of God. It is absolutely true, because if it's not absolutely true and every word of it true, throw it away because we're wasting our time. If the Bible has any errors in it, we have problems. Because then it's like, what can I believe and what, what don't I believe? And this is one of the things I shared in our How to Study the Bible class. When you're studying some of these commentators and they say, well, this might not belong here, throw that commentary away because it's not a good teaching. The Bible is either all true and all correct, or it is not something we can base our life on. Because what parts are you going to, how are you going to figure out what's true and what's not true? So we want to be very careful with that. Looking at the blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, of yourselves and of all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseer. Feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. 
the preciousness of the blood of Christ. He used it to purchase his church. So we want to keep this in mind. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We are justified by his blood. And we've shared justification. Justification is a legal declaration by God that we're perfect. And you know, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. I accept Jesus' sacrifice. He says in the courts of heaven, perfect. How many of us think of ourselves that way? We're all through the scriptures called saints. We're all through the scriptures called justified. When you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God puts over, your, over you perfect. Then, just as the prodigal son's father did when he came home, he strips the rags off of you of your good works, puts a code, brand new code of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ, and says, let's have a party because the son, my, my child is back home. And we look at ourselves like we're worthless pieces of uh, garbage out there, you know, with all our problems, and God's saying, this is my perfect child. We are justified by the blood. How will that change your life if you really, truly start understanding, from God's point of view, you're perfect? How about when Satan comes knocking at your door? Oh, you, you know, you're a really terrible sinner. You know, you had that really bad thought while the pastor was preaching. How could you have a per thought like that in the middle of church? What an awful person you must be. You know, what about what you did last night before church? You know, and you're dared to come show your face in church. If they just knew what you were doing, and you tell Satan, confessed, under the blood, God has made me perfect. And we'll spend the rest of our life being sanctified, being made perfect. But when God looks at you, he says, my perfect child. My perfect child. I don't know how many of you ever worked with kids, but I used to work with kids a lot. And whenever you go tell a parent, you know, your, your, your little darling angel was the troublemaker in my class. Or we had some trouble with your child. Not my little angel. My angel's perfect. You know, God can get away with it because he's paid the price already. <laughs> The parent, most parents can't get away with that. <laughs> but God can because he's paid the price for us. Hebrews 9.17 For a testament is in force after men are dead, where otherwise it has no strength while well, it lives. And this is not definitely... Oh, it's 18. Wherefore, neither is the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the blood on all this, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has joined to you. Jesus died and shed his blood. You know, and then he took his blood to the Father, sitting on the mercy seat of heaven, and said, Here is the covering for the people. It is finished. You know, it is finished. It is paid for. It is done. Other verses on the blood, which we're not going to read right now, is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, and Revelation 1 and 5. I'm going to try to wrap up here. 
But they say the same thing. There's no forgiveness without the blood. And what was the purpose of the blood? In, chap in verse uh, 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things by him, which I say, whether they be in earth or things in heaven, he reconciled. Reconciled is such a powerful word. It means to bring into alignment. Now, I don't know how many people, a lot of people don't reconcile their checkbooks anymore. But in the old days, you'd get your piece of paper from the, from the bank saying, this is how much money you have in the bank, and this is what we paid. And you needed to go through, and if you're really smart, you still go through, <laughs> and make sure that you and the bank agree. You check off your list of what the bank says has been paid. You compare it to what you know is still outstanding, and, and it should match what, what, you, what the bank says you have. If you don't, one of the two of you made an error. Now, the bank will always assume you made the error. <laughs> always. Uh, and probably 99% of the time, you made the error. <laughs> Every once in a while, the bank will make an error, and, but you need to be able to prove it. God reconciles us to him. He takes our whole page of debt, all the sins we've done, covers it with the blood, and he writes on there, paid in full. And you know what? When he does that, he's not just putting paid in full on the sins that you've already committed. This is the problem with those that say, well, Jesus is enough to get you in the door, but you've got to keep yourself there. Well, when Jesus died, all my sins were in the future. I wasn't around 2,000 years ago when Jesus died. So the question is, which of my sins are not going to be covered is none of them. He's going to cover every single sin because he already knows what sins I'm going to commit from the moment that I got saved at 10 years old until the time I die. So he covers all the sins. He writes, paid in full. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? All the sins that you will ever commit when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior are paid in full. And he's not going to you know, be like a lot of people in, in the middle of a fight. Well, 10 years ago, you did this, and yesterday you did this, and I'm sure because of these, you're going to do this. No, that's not the way God does. He says it's paid in full. Well, God, I've done it 5,000 times, paid in full. <laughs> you know, a little slow on learning, but paid in full. <laughs> oh, the reconciliation that God gives us just to be reconciled with him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the, the ministry of reconciliation. Do you realize that we are to go out and try to help other people be reconciled with God? First off, by, just by our witness. So the primary reconciliation of God, come to Jesus and be saved. But how about some of the people that have kind of turned away from God and need to be reminded to come back to him? Okay, you're the prodigal son. Are you done wallowing in the pigsty a little bit? The, the father's waiting for you. Have you ever needed that push in your life? 
I shared with you all, there was a time when I kind of walked away from the church, didn't get into real sins. I just was a workaholic and worked all the time. And one Saturday, my second oldest son came up and he goes, Dad, can we go to church tomorrow? Been away from church for three, three years or something, four years. And I'm going, well, you know what? There's no reason not to go to church. And we went back to church and have been back to church ever since. Maybe you've had a time like that where you kind of was in someplace else and just, you know. And you know, the funny thing is, the one that God usually uses is not the most spiritual one in the family. That son is not the most spiritual one in our family. <laughs> How many times have you been the one that's maybe been used when you're in the worst condition? You think, God, I'm so far away from you, and then he uses you to do something for him. God, I haven't, I haven't read my Bible in weeks, and now you have me talk to this person about the Bible. <laughs> Hint, you feel like a hypocrite. <laughs> I did during the time I was walking away from God. I was telling everybody they needed to read the Bible, go to church, and pray. And I wasn't doing it. <laughs> you know, really felt, every time I spoke, it's like, okay, I know the truth, and I'm not living it. Miserable place for a Christian. You know, for us as Christians, if we try to go back to what we used to enjoy doing in sin, and never it's not enjoyable anymore because we know we're not supposed to be there, and it's miserable, and it's no fun, and yet then we get so dirty that Satan keeps communicating to us, well, you, don't, you can't go back to church. Look how dirty you've become. You've been wallowing with the pigs. And you come back to God and he goes, oh, you're back. Let's, let's get you cleaned up. Let's get your good gar clean garments back on. And he keeps doing it for us. The reconciliation of God. How much he loves and cares for us. Philippians 2.16 And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and that is the flesh which he kills and the new man that he creates. He makes us one by his reconciliation. You know, God, God's plan is so wonderful. And we've shared this with you so many times. You know, God's plan is he crucifies the flesh. He crucifies who I am. He indwells me. He comes out of me and does the work. And then he gives me the rewards for what he did. Isn't that the kind of job most people are wanting? God, I really would like to have a job where somebody else does the work and I get the pay. That's exactly what God tells us. Let me crucify you. I'll work through you and then you'll get the rewards. God gives us exactly what we really want in our, deep in our heart. But unfortunately, most of us do not want to be crucified. <laughs> we don't want to give up our flesh. We don't want to say, God, take away my flesh and let me be like you. And oh, the trouble we get into by not letting our flesh be crucified. The sins we find ourselves in, the sharp words we use on people, because we did not get treated the way we think we should be treated. Isn't that really what's the problem? When you say something sharp to somebody, it's because you didn't get treated the way you wanted to be treated. And God is saying, give up what you want and let me minister through you. How do we forgive somebody? We give up the right to demand their punishment. So we say, okay, God, it's in your hands. Which it always is anyway, because God says, vengeance is mine. You know, God says that it's mine to pay. You know, if you want to do it, you're just going to make a mess out of things. And just learning to love people, build them up, 
Put them in God's hands. My oldest son one time was getting out of, out of control, and I told him, I'm tired of trying to change you. I'm putting you in God's hands to deal with you. That was shortly before we kicked him out of the house as well. Told me many years later that he still remembered that statement, and it scared him drastically to be put into God's hands. Do you realize that's what we need to be doing with each person that we deal with? Why should I care that that person disrespects me or doesn't like me or says bad things about me or, or is doing all these things? I have a crucified flesh, hopefully. <laughs> and I should say, God, they're in your hand. You do what you need to do to them. The scary thing is I've watched God do some pretty hard things to people to get hold of their attention. I want a soft heart that God doesn't have to crush me to get what he wants me to do. He'll do it. You want to hard, harden your heart? And he says, well, I've got a plan for you, and you, I need to get rid of this hard heart. Well, he can fully bring your heart into the crushing machine and crush your heart. Take that soft heart that he gives you and say, God, I want to keep it soft. I want to keep it pliable. When you say something, I want to do it. Just step out and do what it is that he wants you to do. So we just want to look. How important is it to know God, to follow God? He's preeminent. He's given everything. All we have to do is hide in him. And you know, when you're hidden in Christ, it is such a wonderful place to be. You know, Satan can't get at you without permission. The darts of the enemy can't get at you without permission. What a place to be. Hidden in Christ. Wearing the righteousness of Christ. Full armor of God, whatever you want to say, because the full armor of God, each piece of the armor is Jesus. All through Psalms, he says, hide, run to the strong tower, hide into the tower. And people, you'll hear people, well, I'm a, I'm a man's man. I can take anything that comes out there. I'll, I'll just stand up. Well, you can enjoy getting beat up. I will enjoy being in the tower when the enemy's around me that is un unbeatable. Warriors knew when to go into the tower. They knew when to go into the fortress. There was a time when you didn't stand in the middle of the field of battle taking 100 arrows into your body when you said, it's time to go into the tower and be protected. There was a time to fight and a time to stay hidden. And you know the good news for us is most of the time it's the time to stay hidden in Christ. Stay hidden in God. He is our strong refuge. He is our protector. Let's go and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you want, you've done for us. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this message online that doesn't know you, or in this room even, that they will choose today to be the day to come to you, that they will admit that they are a sinner, that they deserve punishment, and they need your sacrifice, and that they will choose to live with you as their Lord and Savior. And we ask you that as we go out this week to help us to do service for you. In Jesus' name, amen.